Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Welcome to the latest edition of TSG Talk, delivering medical aid to the Turkey-Syria earthquakes. On February 6th, 2023, at 04.17 hours, an earthquake of 7.8 magnitude hit central Turkey and northwestern Syria. There was widespread damage over the area around the size of Germany, with the official death toll of 59,000 and the estimated 1.5 million people homeless. Damage to roads, communication systems and winter storms all added to complexity of the disaster. Our guest tonight, Dr Marcus Larson, was part of the medical team deployed to assist the response. Good morning, Marcus. It's uh, wonderful to see you this morning and thank you for uh, taking the time to be a guest on TSG Talk. How, how, how are you doing this morning? Well, thank you, Colin. It's, it's nice to be, uh, to be part of the pod and uh, I'm doing fine. It's really yeah. good to see you. And are you in, just, we always ask our guests where they're talking from, uh, are you in Sweden this morning? Is that, is that your location just now? Yes, I'm in central Sweden in a mm-hmm. town called Huvde, uh, where we're doing some, uh, some teaching and training. And it's a nice crisp day with a few degrees minus frost on the ground. So, yeah, winter's coming. Okay, so slight, slightly nicer than the, the UK this morning, which has got 45 degrees driving rain and wind. <laughs> so I, I do envy you. Um, Marcus, just before we, um, we we start this morning, could, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about your own background um, and, and, and your own experience um, where, where you are at the moment? Absolutely. <clears throat> so in short... I'm 51, husband, father of two, and spent lots of my spare time scouting, uh, Swedish scout organization. Uh, professionally, I'm an emergency physician and a general surgeon, Swedish board. And uh, I've been um, working in many different climates over the years. I've worked in temperate Sweden, subarctic Sweden, Greenland, and then the UAE to get some <laughs> desert experience. Uh, as Clinically, as well as in some different uh, managerial positions, head of department and such. Uh, and I'm really interested in, um, you could call it like physical medicine. That's the hypothermia, hyperthermia, hyperbaric, hyperbaric. So I have uh, diplomas in alpine medicine, biomedicine and so on. So uh, environmental injuries and diseases is, is uh, what gets me going. And that's why I also... Uh, gotten involved in the uh, Swedish Armed Forces, and uh, I now belong to the uh, Swedish Air Force Ranger Company, uh, where we are developing uh, what we call um, Air Force SRT, Surgical Resuscitation Team, a three-man team, uh, which has been operating for almost a year. 
um, and we're constantly developing and it's it's very stimulating uh, we're creating something new and um, dynamic and that's uh, it's lots of fun uh, and it's within this uh, the scope that we were deployed uh, to Turkey in January this year you know that that sounds an absolutely wonderful uh, history that you've got and, and, and a real mix of uh, high skill levels in emergency medicine um, a lot of deployment to different locations as I say um, having been in the United Arab Emirates and having crossed Greenland, I can tell you there is quite a disparity in climates there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's there. You've a lot of experience in that. That's interesting. Uh, the three-man team, just just uh, before we, we talk about the earthquake response, the three-man team you talked about that you're working on, is that a team that's going quite far forwards in, in the battle space? Is that is that where it's designed to be? <coughs> yes. So, uh, we, so our, our, our company, they deal with uh, long-range recon around Swedish airfields. Uh, they deal with uh, combat search and rescue, where one of the missions is finding down pilots. Uh, they do uh, support for um, civilian uh, non-governmental organizations in various climates. And they have been deployed uh, in most uh, different climate zones of the planet so far. Uh, what we're trying to bring is the more advanced medical capacity where we move with them far forward uh, to be lightweight, low footprint or small footprint, but also um, highly capable. Uh, so of course, we, we cannot, we, we're not uh, suited to treat 500 injury, uh, injuries from a, a tank battle, but more to go and uh, facilitate evacuation of uh, single people lost in the woods or uh, trapped somewhere. Or, uh, and of course, support supporting the ranger units. So we have to be lightweight as well, highly mobile, uh, and uh, try to do as much as possible uh, out of our backpacks, Absolutely. which is our smallest footprint, is that we carry everything along with us. Wow, I, I, can, I can see why you're finding it so fascinating. I mean, that it's, one, it's cutting edge medicine, but being able to go as ultra light as possible, but still be efficient is, is, is quite infectious when you get into that sort of medicine. I think, uh, you know, I can absolutely see why it's, uh, it's a very uh, interesting and, and stimulating area to, to be involved in. Um, just moving on to the, the actual, uh, the earthquakes that responded to in, in Turkey and Syria. Um, I remember when I was watching it unfolding on the news, just, just and I think the thing I struggled with when I looked at it was just, just trying to get a hold of the size of this event and the complexity of the event that, that people were, were having to try to organize uh, and, and respond to. Could, could you just give us a feel for what it was like when you got there, just the, the sort of scale of the, 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 the scenario that, 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 you, that you landed in? When we arrived, um, it, was, it was the complete disaster. I don't know how many percent, but a, a great deal of all the buildings were completely destroyed. High rises just lying about like a deck of cards. Um, roads obstructed, uh, people everywhere, cars everywhere, uh, excavators, bulldozers. It was quite overwhelming uh, when we just got there and saw saw the the scale of it. Uh, and the figures you mentioned, I think they might even be on the conservative side because there were. Uh, there were lots of people involved and many injured. Uh, we, it happened on a Monday, uh, like you said, and then we got the call uh, Tuesday evening. We mobilized Wednesday and we flew out Thursday. So we arrived on day uh, 
so on day three, four, to the area. Um, by then, the proverbial dust had started to settle, and uh, we talked to some other nations uh, who had deployed. Um, they told us that initially there was a lot of uh, crush injuries, there was a lot of trauma, uh, uh, in, in insane amount of fractures, large and small. They had to do some in-field amputations because of entrapped people and so on to get them out. Uh, when we got out and about, uh, we had sort of passed that phase. And uh, the, the ones that we participated in rescuing, they were, um, they were not that badly injured because if you were badly injured and trapped and on day four, you were dead, uh, more or less. But yeah, it was, uh, I remember very well, the first night we spent in the field, uh, we looked, we were on a rise uh, sort of across the valley from the city itself. We were at, I should have said, we were at Karaman Marash, which was very close to the epicenter. And there, the city is on the slope of a quite long mountain. We grouped together with uh, lots of other foreign uh, aid agencies, militaries, civilian organizations, sort of on the other side of the valley. Uh, and we, we could see the whole city in front of us. The first night, it was almost completely dark. The only lights in the city were searchlights from uh, excavators and uh, trucks. But then each uh, consecutive night, there were some more lights, uh, some electricity got back. Uh, and we could eventually see that, you know, the last night we were there, some, some street lights and such were back up and running again. But when we came, there was nothing. Uh, nothing was working, no water, no lights, uh, no electricity. So that was, uh, it was very interesting. It was quite challenging. We were um, allocated to a campsite uh, together with other agencies, as I said, and it was run by AFAD, which is sort of the Turkish uh, Disaster Management Authority. Uh, we were assigned a, a, a square plot of gravel where we had to set up and there was also no infrastructure support. So there was water and there was gasoline available uh, at certain times per day. Uh, we had deployed, as we usually do, since we are a highly mobile light ranger unit, uh, with our normal equipment, which were, you know, patrol tents and uh, backpacks and so on, uh, which was pro was not very well suited for setting up a more permanent uh, camp um, with our with our objective to support and assist the rescue efforts uh, uh, in large because it was very cold. Uh, it was minus 12, 15 at night. Uh, and um, we had no, I mean, as I said, we are light and mobile. We don't wear, bring heaters. We don't bring uh, generators and such. Uh, what was really helpful was that, was that we had three Toyota Land Cruisers that we had brought from Sweden. And using them, we could generate electricity and uh, heat for some sensitive equipment. And not the least medication so we were very concerned that our ampules would freeze and crack that our uh, iv fluids would freeze um because i mean going down below minus 10 that is actually a risk so that was a that was a, in a way a lifesaver to have those uh, vehicles available have one on idle all night uh, keeping things uh, warm but then uh, we got resupplied and we were able to uh, extend our camp we got the heaters and generators and such life significantly improved but also you know setting up uh, on a campsite um, without support we had to figure out how to solve hygiene 
sanitation, all those things. But going back, uh, just to say who we were, we were asked by the uh, Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency, who were going to deploy with some uh, rescue experts, if we could support them with uh, a medical team, us, uh, and also a search dogs. So because our unit does personnel recovery, uh, we have uh, trained uh, dogs for finding people lost in the woods or hiding in the woods. Uh, we didn't know how they would respond to a disaster area uh, after an earthquake with uh, rubble and uh, collapsed buildings and so on, but uh, they were available. Uh, we could offer a one package solution of, of dogs and healthcare. So, uh, so we were deployed. And we also had a unit from uh, an engineering regiment who had these big drills and uh, concrete saws and all that stuff, um, endoscopes to look under rubble, uh, lots of kit. So we were approximately 70 people, somewhere around there, who deployed and set up camp. So yeah, was, the first few nights were very uh, frosty. Uh, the water we brought, which was bottled, uh, a lot of it froze overnight but then uh, the days weren't that cold so uh, uh, we recovered pretty well now it sounds like um the, the scale of what you were going into and, and then you throw the complexity of uh, between minus 12 and minus 15 and all the complexities of operating individually in that climate but obviously maintaining your medical equipment in that climate as well it's just another factor you i think you've got to really consider when you when you do hit the ground, how how am I going to do that? And then that ability to adapt with you with your land cruises on Aido to keep to keep them warm. I think I think that goes a long way to trying to find what the mindset of disaster response in medicine is. That it's not it's not simple. You, there's there's a lot of diversity and thought required, and there'll be a lot of things that you maybe don't expect that you've got to to overcome with with the available resources you've got and you'll never be perfectly resourced i don't think so it's just really interesting to you to understand how, how you, you you got to that situation but coped with with with, with the problems you were you, you were given and, and how you solved them i always find that fascinating to to understand those areas yeah so um <clears throat> no we uh, this was the first time we deployed in this uh, in, in this kind of setting uh, so we did, we did indeed lear learn quite a lot uh, from what we encountered. Uh, so one of those things, we, we came down and uh, we set up camp the first day and then we wanted to inventory our equipment. So we wanted to see, okay, where do we have everything? And we went through our our medicines and such. And the uh, thing was, of course, we didn't have a big tent. So we it was a nice, beautiful day. Sun was shining, blue skies. So we set up outside. We uh, on uh, on some uh, tarps and some crates. Um, um, but what we realized after just a few minutes was that everything became covered with a fine, fine layer of dust, uh, sort of slightly oily dust. Uh, and uh, that kind of made me a bit concerned because, uh, I mean, then that's contamination. Uh, so we, I looked around and then I looked over at this. This was at the camp. I looked over at the city, which early in the morning had been very highly visible, very clear. And then towards lunchtime or uh, afternoon, it, it was covered in smog. And this was, <clears throat> uh, on reflection, it was obvious, but it was surprising at the time. So after the earthquake, uh, the buildings collapsed and there was a lot of, of course, rubble and dust. 
then what people do is they bring in all this heavy equipment, start shifting this rubble and dust, which makes it even dustier. Uh, traffic was uh, brought down to a crawl. So lots of vehicles were idling about, moving about slowly or just uh, running their engines to keep people warm and generate electricity because there was no other source. I mean, we weren't the only ones doing this. The whole city was probably doing this. Um, and then, of course, the digging and the everything created more smog. Another thing, it was very cold. Uh, there was no electrical heating, so people started to make fires along all the roads uh, where there was, you know, open area. They had set up uh, temporary shacks, uh, tents, lean bys, whatever, uh, and they were burning anything available to keep warm. Absolutely understandable. But this contributed to all the smoke and dust. Um, and I was concerned because, I mean, okay, sure, if you burn firewood, that's one thing, but was there asbestos in this dust? Uh, were there uh, other chemicals set free? I mean, maybe people are burning whatever plastic they can get over. I know that uh, too much uh, fuel exhaust from uh, large uh, trucks and uh, bulldozers, that's not very healthy. Uh, and uh, And also, there was no sewage. Uh, that whole system had broken down. So people were, well, they were performing their needs everywhere, uh, which uh, then, given the, the weather, freeze-dried everything and uh, it crumbled to dust. So um, it was probably quite a mix that was swirling around in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after our first uh, tour into the rubble fields on the first afternoon, then we arrived, uh, I decided it was absolutely mandatory that everybody wear respirators or medical grade face masks if they were going to move about outside camp just to prevent any inhalation injuries from whatever was whirling around there. I also found out when I arrived that I was the SMO, being the only physician physician on site. So yeah, I had to learn that pretty quickly. Uh, so preventive medicine became became postventive medicine, uh, but we figured that out as well. Oh, excellent! I uh, hit the ground running as it is. <laughs> and, and, and I think when you end up in these environments, you do. And and I think what I picked up from that is the the it's it's almost occupational medicine, I think, but it's it's the environmental medicine. What what is the hazard being caused? You you've had the initial event. Uh, but now there's there's different hazards being caused by that event and, and the and the actions responding to that event, as I say, the the the, the burning of, of of different types of materials to create fires for the smog, the lack of sanitation. Um, it's it's interesting, um, and I, I wonder if there's anything, any studies come out from it with with working in a sort of a, a cold, dry environment. If that kept communicable diseases down at all, do do you think that? working in the cold, dry environment helped that as opposed to a warm, humid environment. Do, do you think anything came out of that at all? That you, It was maybe, although it's it's got its own difficulties in operating on, especially when you're not initially equipped for it, but do you think, given it was cold, that it did keep the communicable diseases down at all? Any, any thoughts on that? Yes, I definitely think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, one very, um, very brutal fact was that uh, many, of course, many casualties, many, many, dead were recovered uh maybe not that many by us but at large and there were many dead still uh, trapped underneath the the fallen down buildings uh but there was very little 
mm. stench. Uh, so I think what happened was that, you know, they were, they were the, the bodies were chilled. Uh, some probably froze. So uh, there was not so much decomposition, uh, which of course prevented spread of disease uh, as well. Uh, I think the, the Turkish uh, relief organization they did a, a great job. They were uh, they had a great many resources. Of course, any resource in the world would have been overwhelmed by by what happened, but they were pretty well equipped. So they supplied um, water and other things. Uh, so I think that uh, that probably prevented. If, if it had been summer. Uh, it would have been uh, a lot worse. Uh, and I think that, you know, keeping things, keeping food cold, keeping water chilled and fresh, it would have been more, uh, probably more enticing for people to go and grab water from the ground, so from a ground source. Um, so, yeah, uh, in a ways, the cold probably prevented uh, the spread of disease. Yeah. And it is interesting when you look at the dynamics of the incident, how it, how it does change those things. Uh, and I think one of the things I always learned when I was going through my, my, my disaster management degree was, was trying to understand the incubation period of diseases, but actually how they were affected by climate as well. And, and it can make, you know, I think putting those two things together could really change how you, you put your logistics in as well. Um, so it's all those dynamics you're trying to and pull that knowledge together to work out actually what is coming at you the next 10 to 14 days as, as incubation periods sort of complete themselves. But if the if the weather's slowing that down, then we may be able to put a different resource in a little bit sooner or later to, to, to affect it. It's, 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 I think it's that just labyrinth of different things that happen in different disasters. I don't think you ever get that one disaster is like another. There's always different dynamics involved in these things. Uh, and I think that's a fascinating thing. It's, the adapt, again, adaptability, working out the hazard of the, 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 the toxic dust that you came across. So, okay, we now need to improve our protection for our own respiratory um, uh, protection um, and yeah just trying to work out everything it was thrown at you on on the again going back to maybe the complexity of the incident and the numbers of responders that were arriving as well what was where were you tasked by the Turkish authorities with that with a specific task um, was the tasking quite clear or was it something you had to try and work out? Where you could best fit in? What? What? Any? Any thoughts on that at all? And that's a very good question because when we left Sweden, we were told that we would be working under a uh, mandate where it was um, a disaster situation. We were given full uh, clearance to do whatever medically necessary to perform our duties uh, in Turkey. There were no issues about uh, licensing or any such things. So we had sort of the carte blanche to go and act. When we came there, we came to this huge campsite with, uh, I don't know how many, 50, 60 different countries, organizations. They had a, uh, um, a headquarters where uh, one of the officers, uh, the military officers, was uh, liaisoned, and he became sort of the point of contact. He got then uh, tasks from the local uh, sort of uh, board of this uh, headquarters, and they said that we would need uh, your team to go to place A or B and C and assist. Uh, also, uh, th there was a lot of uh, just uh, verbal transmission of orders. We had one lady, I think she was Belgian. Uh, every time she turned up at camp, we knew time to go. <laughs> so she brought us you know, specific uh, instructions saying, please, uh, you, your, your help would be very much needed in this area. Or that area and then we would get into our land cruisers and we would go 
Sometimes we would go as a larger team. Sometimes we'd split up that us, the medical team, we would go to where they were expecting to extract someone alive, uh, where there needed to be a major cutting done. They would send the engineers uh, and the dog teams were supporting the room where it was appropriate. So, yeah, so, just... so that was, uh, it was sort of a, a touch, touch and go quite a lot. Yeah, but I think I'm get, what I'm getting from that, there was coordination in what you were doing. There, there definitely sounds like there was a hierarchy. Um, they, they'd obviously worked out probably some sort of hazard market, and then they would be putting you in an appropriate place. So you were, you were working under probably a larger umbrella of, of multiple teams, and you were put, being put in the most appropriate place for, for the skills that you had. It sounds, sounds like, although the, I don't think these things are ever fully organised, it sounds like there was a, there was a decent structure in place to, to task you correctly. Just, would, would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I, it's difficult to say uh, mm-hmm. because I was sort of on a grassroots level, yeah. uh, working, not so much planning, but uh, there was so much need. Mm-hmm. So you could argue that more or less wherever we were put yeah. to, um, uh, we were, uh, you were talking about the complexities before and um, also uh, the, the working in the cold pros and cons. So one of the things was when we set up camp in the beginning and there was a shortage of, of our sort of just everyday infrastructure, we were using a lot of hand sanitizer to keep our hands clean uh, uh, after, you know, before meals and after using uh, facilities and so on. After a day or so of just using hand sanitizers, that became a problem because the hands were a bit grimy. Uh, uh, And then I managed to get some kind of uh, soap and water system running. But then, of course, that was a a problem because then the water was very cold. Uh, especially in the mornings, the weather uh, creates its uh, its special prerequisites or conditions that you need to uh, address before deploying to such an area. And uh, it is it is difficult to say, you know, what kind of weather are we going to encounter? Are we going to prepare for everything? But I think if you're going to be a, I think the relief organizations are probably a lot better than us at this. And you have to take, uh, you know, you have to take into, uh, you have to measure for for any kind of situation. You said that there is no disaster that is, you know, the, the experience is, is different from disaster to disaster. I would even say that within within the uh, sort of time scale the, of one disaster, it is different. So the teams that deployed on day one, we met some people, uh, uh, for instance, from the Arab Emirates. They were extremely quickly uh, on site. Uh, the Israelis were there really quickly and others. And they said that you know, in the beginning, there was absolutely nothing. Uh, everything, the roads were blocked. Uh, it was very difficult to move about. And it was, uh, above all, very difficult to get your equipment from the airport to the site. So a few teams uh, found themselves deployed without anything, uh, more or less than the clothes that they were wearing. So they had a challenge the first night just to uh, find shelter and keep it warm themselves because... Mm-hmm. The backpack was still packed away, or the sleeping bag was still packed away in the airplane uh, at the airport. And then, of course, uh, as I mentioned, they had the problem of dealing with the trauma and the uh, crush injuries and the trapped people. Uh, and we, when we arrived a little bit later, there was already you know, three days of experience of, of the major camp. Some infrastructure was up and running with water supply and so on. And we were dealing with a different panorama of injuries. Yeah, and I think that's a hugely important point you bring in, is that th- there are definitely phases to disaster. Um, and it was quite interesting that one of the first points you brought out was saying, by the time we arrived, everybody who was seriously injured and hadn't been safe was probably dead. 
Um, yeah. And uh, and I'm, I don't have the statistics and the off the top of my head, but I certainly remember reading a few papers when you're looking at a trapped person in the cold environment, they're either going to die off their injuries or they're going to die of their injuries and hypothermia. But it's the survivability is is not good if you're trapped and injured. In, in the, basically, <clears throat> an awful lot of people, there's not a lot of survival for serious injuries after the first 24 hours in something like an earthquake. Um, because as I say, the infrastructure is not in place. The injuries are severe, but the, if they're trapped, they usually become hypothermic as well, which is quite interesting. So that it's not, I think you're right, it's not all about day three, day four. The dynamics have completely changed again. Um, you know, we're almost moving through. You're still in rescue phase, but it's a different rescue, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's important for people deploying on the ground who maybe have an image of, say it's an earthquake, what an earthquake response is. But that image is constantly changing within a dynamic response. And, and, with, and again, I suppose you then... The, the environment can change again if there's an aftershock. And I, and I think I was reading there was significant aftershocks. Was that correct in, in the area? Did yeah. you, did, did, how, how did that affect you, the aftershock? Did, did, did that change anything in what you were doing? Because again, it's a change in dynamic. Um, and, and yeah, it, but <laughs> they were, uh, we, we felt several aftershocks, uh, but they were quite weak. So, we never experienced the aftershock that would have made me concerned. Uh, that being said, I grew up in Tokyo. Yeah. They have three earthquakes per day. Okay, right. <laughs> and I've experienced up to 8.7, I think, back in 1988 or something. That is pretty bad. Uh, but, but so, so yeah, uh, at least I had, I had a sense of, thing, of evaluate, evaluating how strong it was. So, um, no, the, the, it was a small sense of concern, um, especially if it, you know when you were on site and the buildings were already fallen down, and you're thinking, okay, how much does it take to get this to collapse completely? Uh, will it collapse on top of us and so on? But you're there, you're focused on the mission, and you just keep working away. Mm-hmm. No. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, no, interesting. And again, it goes back to the change in dynamics, the reevaluation of, of risk, the reevaluation of how you're operating. And it's such a dynamic environment, I think, we, we, when, when we turn up in these areas. Just um, thinking about your, your own experience, um, is there any sort of stories that you can bring out from your resp- response that you, you really learned something from? Maybe something that worked quite well or maybe something that didn't work quite well, which is obviously always a learning point as well. Any, anything specifically that you can think from a story point of view that you... you, you yeah, got, well, there, got... there are a few things. You know, you, you said about the, the hypothermia and entrapment. So what was really interesting was that when we, we rescued a family... Uh, I think I calculated it was somewhere around hour 109 or 115 after the shock. Uh, so it was on the fourth, fifth day. Uh, young girl, 11, and her parents. And they, when the first quake hit, they left their apartment and went down to the basement to get into their car and get out. Then the building collapsed. So they were trapped in the garage. Um, and they were, so they were more or less not injured. Uh, but when we got them out, they were cold, but they were not. I mean, they were still conscious. Uh, I treated the little girl and she was cold and pale, but she was communicating. Uh, she actually spoke better English than most of the ambulance staff that I handed her off to. 
so she, uh, I was thinking, you know, five days trapped in a basement, probably no food and water, uh, but still um, in pretty good shape considering. And what we realized was that under all this rubble, uh, it actually uh, kept the temperature to a certain degree. So I suppose it becomes like a like an earth basement, earth cellar or a cave that, you know, it becomes cold, but never goes. It, it was definitely not 15 below because then they would not, not absolutely mm. not have survived that long. So, so in a way they were protected, the ones who were deeply buried. But yeah, so, so that, was one, that was one interesting observation. And then, uh, of course, and then we had an, uh, an illness uh, in, uh, in the, not in our team, but in the extended team that we, we were. And um, it was a man who, was, uh, who uh, went into Eurosepsis. Uh, that was a bit unexpected. And uh, when we, we were focused on, you know, trauma, fractures, injuries, crush injuries, all of a sudden we have to deal with a very serious medical situation. And then trying to manage to manage that case uh, in the field uh, with uh, the resources we had and getting him evacuated, that was also quite challenging considering you know, they, they wanted to send us a, a road ambulance from Ankara, uh, which would have been an 11 hour single way drive with no monitoring equipment whatsoever. I quickly commandeered the ambulance and drove to a local hospital that was run by another nation's uh, or military. And then we, uh, together, we got him treated there uh, for his, uh, which eventually became a, a multi-organ failure and he was flown out to Istanbul. But uh, we got him stabilized uh, and evacuated. So that was also very interesting to see. You know, well, you have a situation, you have a city that's collapsed, you have X thousands of uh, sick, dead, injured people, and then you add one more foreign relief worker uh, who needs to be evacuated. Uh, so it was challenging, but uh, we got him through it. That was a very good learning experience. Yeah, and I think um, yeah, I think the word adaptability comes to mind when you're dealing with these things and, and just flexibility in, in your thought process. But it sounds like uh, when you were dealing with this colleague, the, the evacuation chain to, to say, you know, to get to the local hospital and then to fly into Istanbul, it, that's significant. That, that, that doesn't take two minutes to organise, I can imagine, within a disaster zone. I can imagine that that took some work to, to make a successful rescue. Yeah. Yes, it did. It did, and uh, it was lucky. We we had some, uh, you know, friends of friends who we could get uh, contact the, the various informal routes, and then uh, people you met a few days earlier, and you went over, you chatted to them, and mm. don't you guys have a so and so? Could you do this and that and so on? So that was fortunate. Then we also we got to test some of our, our equipment, which thankfully performed really well, like our blood warmer uh, or fluid warmer in this case. Mm. So. Uh, I was. It was. It turned out to be a very good learning experience, and thankfully, he uh, he were, pulled through really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it sounds. Um, as I say, the outcome was absolutely perfect, but the logistics behind it sounds like we're, we're incredibly well managed, especially within the environment you're working in. And I suppose that's yeah. a, that's a big point to to bring out is that you're own trying to protect your own team from illness and Ill, illness and injury in these zones is very important because. You know, ultimately, if, if you're trying to get the maximum care for, for the, the affected population, you've got to be efficient as possible from a health point of view as a team. And, you know, there's a huge amount of communicable or potential communicable diseases going around and a huge 
um, risk of, of, of injury just within the environment you're working. So I think trying to keep your team safe is it's a job in itself, I would think, to keep 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 yourself efficient and, and healthy and, and not not injured. Um, and any any issues with that at all, with working in such hazard environments and, and such levels of potential communicable diseases? Any anything come up with keeping your team healthy? Oh at yes. All? So a very important that that is a really really important point, and one of the major learning points of this is um, so we. As I said, we are a military unit, we are a lightweight ranger unit, and uh, we are geared towards uh, the military situation. We're looking at equipment and personal protective equipment. In this situation, we, we talked about it before we deployed and we, we barely had time to get some uh, shoes with uh, puncture guards, but uh, it was quite obvious that our normal military uniforms uh, were not maybe perfectly suited to crawl through rubble to and uh, to this extent. Um, there, you know, there are all these uh, iron rods sticking out everywhere. Everything is sharp. Everything is broken. There's broken glass, and yes, you would encounter that in a war zone as well, but maybe not to this extent and not this continuously. Uh, so, and also the, the, there was, you could argue there was a constant biohazard threat. So it would have been like working in a CBRN environment. Uh, also you did not know what kind of chemicals there were about. That was nowhere finding out. So just looking at a, uh, just occupational health perspective, we, we probably would have uh, needed uh, like firefighter grade protective kit and, uh, more, for the situation uh, adjusted equipment so we, we got these uh, these low-rise shoes which were good because they were covering the toes and and of course for punctures but maybe we should have boots uh, we will definitely try to get that next time uh, we will get uh, more respirators um maybe even more so we can replace the filters um etc etc uh, i mentioned about sanitation in the camp that will be one of the first things i will be looking for if we go again you know how can we get water how can we get warm water how can we stay clean and efficient uh and working towards or uh, in this in this environment so yeah definitely uh, it's uh, it's really really important you have to consider that even though you are good and uh, working in one environment that might not be applicable to everywhere. And then, of course, had this been in the summer with 35, 40 degrees, wearing heavy uh, protective equipment, that would have been really challenging. Yeah, and then you, I suppose you've got, if it was warmer, then you've got the whole issue of keeping yourself hydrated, the amount of clean water you would need yeah. to, to stay hydrated with doing heavy physical exercise. Uh, again, change in dynamics, changing problems you have to solve. Um, but I think I think what I'm getting from that, and, and I've learned from a lot of people who go to disaster zones, is actually maintaining the health of your own team. It's, it's a complex job. As you say here, the infrastructure of your camp, for the clean running water, uh, the correct storage of your, uh, of your, of your medicines, um, making sure you've got the right kit or as close as possible to keeping yourself protected. The, it's not a two-minute job to sort out. It's it's actually you almost need dedicated people to keep your own team healthy. I think at times, um, and and something to, to have an oversight to make sure everybody's coping. Uh, it's certainly it's no small job to do when when you're in these conditions. 
Um, no, absolutely fascinating. Um, looking back at your experiences, um, if you were to sort of bring out maybe two to three points of big learning points that you got from it, that, that maybe our listeners could take away if they ever had to, or maybe were thinking of joining a sort of some form of disaster response team or were on the cusp of deploying and were listening to this podcast. Is there anything you, what, what would be the big points you would think you would say, think, have a think about this before you go or have a think about this before you you, you volunteer for the, this this area of medicine? And any any big areas you, would, you think would be good for them to think about? Yes, so so uh, one, I, I would say the first thing, absolutely first thing, planning, 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 planning. Get, I mean, even if you're not doing the planning yourself, uh, read up on it, get all the information you can. Consider what am I going to do, how, where, uh, what are the conditions. You know, just get as much information as possible, and then review what what do I have, what equipment do I have, how am I going to use it, is it sufficient protection. Uh, is it sufficient? I mean, can I work in this? Um, I mean, everybody who's ever tried working in a CDR institute knows how that what that's like. I mean, it's, how how can we? Um, uh, how can I optimize my my pre, my preconditions uh, for this mission so that I'm because we we want to go and do the healthcare. We we want to pr- practice medicine. We want to treat people, help people, cure people, but we don't want to become another casualty and. We don't want to do it at unnecessary risk. I mean, of course, there is a risk. We're going into a disaster area, but we don't want to bring unnecessary risks with us. Um, so that's uh, that's one thing. Just planning, and we've learned we learned really, really a lot of that. And then, and I guess maybe a little bit uh, uh, talking against myself is if you want to make a big impact, you have to go as early as possible. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, we, we mentioned it that you know day one is not the same as day five, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, if you come day ten, then you're just going to be doing uh, recovery of victims. And uh, if you, I mean, if there are some units who will only work with that, of course, identification and so on. But from our perspective, yeah, it's uh, we will try to uh, be prepared and uh, uh, be ready to deploy quickly next time, uh, so that we can make a bigger. Uh, difference and uh, and that we won't be struggling with our own issues before being able to deploy to the field and then we we actually uh, on day three in the field we got resupplied that was very nice mm-hmm. uh, then we got a big inflatable tent we got generators and heaters oh that was nice <laughs> uh, also uh, we got uh, loads of, we got surgical equipment uh, which we thankfully or regrettably never had to use uh, we got an <laughs> We got an ISTAT, you know, the, the uh, blood gas uh, analysis, um, which is point of care. And we were really, really happy. Uh, uh, and it was complete. You know, there was the machine, there was the charging cord, there were the little uh, cassettes that you analyze everything. So we, we switched it on and it said system update needed. So um, Lessons learned, if you're going to bring heavy or, or, or advanced medical equipment, make sure that the software is updated. Mm. So it became a rather heavy book uh, uh, paperweight <laughs> for us because we couldn't use it, which was a bit sad. But anyway, what was also what was funny was we, um, so we, we packed medication in uh, predetermined kits. Uh, and uh, when they asked us what we needed, we said, well, considering the situation, we would need two more kits. 
uh, which then would encompass everything from trauma to antibiotics to everything. Somewhere along the line, there was a misunderstanding and we got 20, we got 20 kits, which was funny because it was, I mean, in the kit, it's also the whole CPR, um, the whole ACLS package. So on the last day before we were evacuated ourselves or, or recalled, uh, when the rescue effort went from rescue to recovery, then we were pulled out. Uh, we went to a local hospital and we asked them, hello, would you like to take over all the medication that we're not going to use? Because then, of course, we had, we had over 100 ampules of ketamine, for instance, and we had lots of good stuff. But we also had 16 boxes of amiodarone. And that's, of course, an antiarrhythmic drug. Uh, and uh, so 16 boxes of 10 ampules. I've never seen that much amiodarone in my life. I've, I've not given that much amiodarone <laughs> in my life. Uh, I haven't even given a tenth of that. So they made big eyes at us. The head of ED at the local hospital said, what, what are you thinking is going to happen in Turkey <laughs> if you bring us so much of this, this yeah. very, very uh, specific, specialized medication? I'm uh -huh. like, yeah, just, just take it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just no questions. Don't ask. Just yes, that was kind of funny at the time so yes. yeah uh, communication is is always a challenge mm. yeah and, and i think yeah. communication the world over in, in any sort of um, environment such as disasters and war zones uh, major incident management if you were asking anybody what's the biggest challenge it's probably communication and, and keeping it simple keeping it accurate uh, and and there's there's a whole podcast on that and many more. I think we could talk on um, the efficiency of communications in in, uh, in disaster disaster response. It's fascinating. No, I think that's that. Those are absolutely wonderful points. I, I I would agree with you from a planning point of view. Um, you know, looking at the trying to understand the environment, trying to understand the possible injury profiles, trying to understand how your team will function within that environment. That, and and then checking kit and looking at kit again and checking again, it's you, there's never a minute wasted on preparation. The more you can put in, the better. I don't, I, and that that would be the one thing I would always say to anybody: get your planning right. It's, I've I've always compared it going to, it to going on a major in a major expedition, where if you don't get your planning right, it it will fail and it will fail badly and dangerously. And, and I think responding to disasters is fairly similar. You know, if I go on an expedition crossing Greenland and I don't, don't get my fuel calculation right, I will die on day 20 because the Arctic will kill me. If I get it wrong, go to yeah. disaster, I will run out of things. My team will become ill. I will put additional resources on the people I'm trying to help and I will fail on my mission. Um, and, and I think they're quite similar. I, but if you really, really get that planning right and have the attention to detail, I think it massively enhances your, your performance on the ground. You never get it perfect, but I think it was such a long way to making it work. Um, so I couldn't agree more on the planning phase. So, so important. Yeah. So sometimes the most boring bit as well, uh, but probably the most important uh, to, to get out. No, these are fantastic points. Just uh, before I try and summarize uh, some of the, the many great points you put across today, one, one question we ask all of our guests on TSG Talk um, is if you were to pick one piece of medical equipment uh, that you would always take with you, no matter where you're deploying, well, what do you, what do you think that would be? Yeah, so I, I gave, um, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about that. And uh, uh, looking strictly medical, I think actually would, it would be the, the pox. Sorry, say the, again. The, 
the pox, the the uh, the satu- uh, what do you call it? The uh, uh, to measure the blood uh, oxygen saturation of the blood. Okay. Uh-huh. And because it's it's, I mean, the white weight. It's not perfect, of course. It has its limitations. It has its pitfalls. But weight to benefit ratio, uh, using it to mo- if you cannot bring a big monitor, if you cannot, if you don't have that many people, it's it gives you a quick overview of the patient. Mm. It gives you a rough estimate of how your recess is going. Um, it is, uh, yeah, I think that would be what I would, would bring. Uh, but then since I'm a hypothermia nerd, I might want to bring uh, the fluid warmer, mm-hmm. especially the new one we have. It's, uh, yeah, because it, it, it makes such a big difference uh, uh, for a hypothermic patient. Mm-hmm. But of course, deploying to maybe to, to the desert region, maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, although deserts can be very cold at night, that's for sure. That's true. Yeah, that's I, true. I, and I've seen many hypothermic patients in the in the trauma rooms uh, where I've worked because of air conditioning and yeah. uh, everybody thinking that it could never become hypothermic. Yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. I remember one of my first nights in the desert in the first Gulf, and uh, I've never seen again like it. Uh, and, I, and I shivered under my poncho for, for the whole night, thinking. This is a desert. This can't be happening. So deserts get cold and often wet, <laughs> which is yep. surprising. Yeah. yeah, no, I I think we can give you both those. I, I, I think that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, excellent choices. So just just if I can try and summarize um, for our listeners to, to try and make main the bring, bring the main points and, and and please let me know if I've missed anything big. I I, I think what I've got from this that um, most Disasters are different, uh, and all disasters are often different to the, the last. One earthquake is different to the other, to another quake, earthquake. There's different dynamics involved when you respond. And I think trying to understand the dynamics you're, you, you're trying to go to, are you going to cold, dry and an earthquake? Are you going to warm, humid and an earthquake? Those are two, although they're both earthquakes, they're both very different disasters. And the type of patient you're going to be dealing with Yes, you will have the trauma, but 10 days later, the disease you're dealing with could be very, di- could, could be very different. Um, so I, I think yes. understanding the dynamics uh, of one, the event, but two, the environment that you're being faced with. And then I think you brought out really well the, the sort of secondary hazards that may happen, like the dust cloud you were dealing with, which then takes you into realms of occupational health and protection of your team are really important as well. Um, so I think understanding that sort of whole mix of dynamics and hazards and how you respond and how you adapt is, is something that's really important as, as you respond. And I think that links back into what you're saying, planning is so important. Really really thinking deeply about where it is you're going and what are those dynamics and how do I plan to, to be the best I can when, when I actually deploy. Uh, the other point I really like, and I think it's very important, is that once you're in the disaster zone, as the days, as time passes, that disaster zone will change as well. You know, we'll have the initial rescue phase, maybe 24, 36 hours. But after that, there is often a change in what we're trying to achieve um, to, to maximise our care on the ground. Um, and understanding that the disaster doesn't stay the same, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a living scene, if that's probably the best way to put it. And I think you have to be able to change with that quickly change in dynamic to, to maximise what we're doing on the ground. I thought that was a really, really good point. And one point, and, and I think we, when we talked to a lot of non-government agencies when they deployed 
and give aid. It's taking care of your team is really important, making sure when you get there, you can stay fit, you can stay healthy, so you can do the best. But that's not an insignificant job. You know, understanding how you protect your team and keep them healthy, it's, there's a lot of work behind that, um, and it shouldn't be underestimated. Um, I think I think that was something really, really important that I brought out. And on, and on your three points, um, I really like them. The planning, we cannot underestimate. The earlier you go, the earlier you go the, from a rescue point, you, you're going to have the greater impact. Um, and one thing I've never really thought about, to be honest, was um, when you say make sure you've got the most up-to-date software for your equipment. Because I suppose the more sophisticated we go, the more these things are driven by software. But yeah, not having the updates is, is something I've never thought about. And I think that's as we're taking more sophisticated monitoring systems um, and, and more sophisticated medical equipment, I think that that's something I, I will certainly bear in mind um, if I ever have to do a planning phase of, of anything like this again. Um, it's not something I've really put on my checklist and something that will be going on my list. That's that's absolutely for sure. Is, is there anything I've missed at all from that? Is there any other points you'd like to, to put into the summary? No, I think you got, I think uh, that was one of the most important uh experiences I made and uh, no I mean if you just uh, have some some message some final words along the road is that uh, if whoever listens you know if you get an opportunity if you're interested uh, I, I really encourage people to get involved and to do these things because it's uh, you learn a lot uh, you make you, you make a difference you help out yeah. yeah, and I think you're right. It's it's making that positive difference to the affected population. It's you, you can't underestimate how, how valuable that is to to, to vulnerable the vulnerable populations. Yeah, they were really happy and grateful. I met so many people who were really happy that we were there, and that's even considering that at the time Sweden was maybe not the most popular country in the Middle East. Yeah, no, absolutely worthwhile. So, so Marcus, thank you so much for your time today, and 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 thank you for all the work that you did on the ground to 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 help the, the earthquake victims. You know, I think it's hugely commendable what what you and your team did. So, so thank you so much for one your time with us today, and two for all the input and, and positive care that that you gave everybody. If you would like to ask any questions on this episode, we will place a post on our LinkedIn page at TSG Associates. This edition of TSG Talk will be on all the main podcast sites. Please like and subscribe, and a good ratings are always appreciated and will really help make the series more visible to our wider community. We'll be back again soon with another TSG Talk. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.